Well, if you came here today and you were looking for a sermon on the uh, prodigal son and the good father in that text, you're not getting it. Um, typically, if you're a visitor, uh, you don't know this, but typically at our church, we preach through books of the Bible. And so actually on Mother's Day, Pastor Mark brought a, a real ringer on the prostitute from Revelation. It was a terrific message, not your typical Mother's Day message. And uh, this one is probably not your typical Father's Day message, but uh, it's a terrific passage, and I'm looking forward to going through it uh, with you together. If you want to think back to, to some of Pastor Mark's sermons from Revelation, um, Revelation chapter 1, verse 3 kind of sets our thinking, and in Revelation 1, 3, it, it reminds us that blessed is the one who reads aloud this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and keep what is written in it, for the time is near. And so Pastor Mark week after week reminded us that end time study is not scary, that it's truly a comfort for God's people. And for many of us, we would think, no, 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 I've grown up knowing that's the scary stuff. We've got, you know, great uncle Bill that won't quit talking about this at family gatherings or this thing, and we don't even want to think about it. But we were reminded, and we were seeing week after week after week, the comfort that it is knowing these end times things that God has given us. And there's certainly some differences of opinion on some details. There's certainly some strengths or weaknesses in the different positions. But overall, a tremendous comfort. He's coming again. There's a new heaven, a new earth coming. He's going to make all things new. He's coming for his children. But for most religious people, and by religious, I'm going to say they're going to acknowledge God. Uh, maybe they, they have some understanding or, or some respect for Scripture. This does not mean that I'm talking about believers here. But for most religious people in our world, end-time study is not a comfort. When a, when a Jehovah's Witness comes to your door, um, they have some grave concerns about end times. Because using Jehovah's Witnesses, for example, Charles Russell said, I think it was uh, 18, 1874, Jesus is going to return. The date came, the date went, and he changed it to 1914. When he died in 1916, followers had some real problems on their hands. They said, you know what, let's back up the train a little bit. I think he did come in 1914, and um, we'll just call it October 1st, and we're all good with that, right? We're all good with that? And I can hear that and think, oh my goodness. But how many times do people that claim to be followers of Jesus Christ make predictions as well? We've got... Hal Lindsey in 1988 that some of us might remember. We've got all the Herald camping of 94 and 2000, and I think 2011, he had another one. We think of the, the blood moons from, what, five or eight years ago that Hagee was pushing. We think, what is going on with this? Well, people want to have answers, and it's really, really popular. You want to bring a crowd? Talk and tell everybody that I have got every exact detail of, of end times details, and you'll, you'll get a crowd. But what are, we, what are we doing with that? Others may not pick dates, but they might say they're a Christian and they're going to live ignoring the return. That he really is coming back. And we need to live in light of the return. We're sinning in that way as well if we live life ignoring. Or others might wring their hands, go through life wringing their hands saying, he has to come back now because I don't like how things are politically or socially. Or, or economically, or with my health, or, or in all manner of things. So when we look through this text today, 
And um, this is probably considered a, a, a top five challenging chapter in Scripture. We look at this today, we might not be on the exact same point on every detail in here. I hope there are things in here that you say, you know what, I want to, to read this more. I want to study this more. I want to know more about this. But I've kind of, we, we've set it up. There's kind of four main pillars that are going to kind of, if we're going to build a house, we're going to have four big pillars kind of holding up our thinking and reminding us that the return of Christ is a comfort. We've got reassurances in the return of Christ. And so the first one's going to be that we need to remember not to be deceived. We live in a world that we've already said that there's deception all around. People get deceived all the time. And it's been happening that way for 2,000 years, for 3,000 years, for 6,000 years. Deception is all around us. We need to remember not to be deceived. Secondly, we're going to, the other pillar is going to be we need to remember what we have been taught. We need to not just say, well, this is what I believe now or this is something I heard. We need to think back and, and what teaches me and who guides me and how is my thinking built. The last two pillars, three and four, are the smaller ones, or at least we're going to spend, I shouldn't say they're smaller, we're going to spend a little less time in them. We need to remember the good news, the good news of Jesus Christ, that he came and he had died and is the only one that could provide atonement for the sins that John Lynn was sharing so clearly with us. And then the fourth pillar, we need to remember the word, and that's both going to be the inscripturated word and the chapter one of John word, Jesus Christ. So those are kind of the four pillars. Be thinking of reassurance, be thinking of comfort, and these pillars are kind of holding up the house as we go through this chapter right here. So we need to, first of all, remember to not be deceived. First Thessalonians chapter 1 was glory to God at Christ's final coming. Pastor Keith, uh, Maddie preached on that this past week. So all glory to God, all glory to God, Christ is coming again. And Second uh, Thessalonians chapter 2 is Paul's response to a wrong understanding of that return. He's going to clear some things up. He's going to correct some things. He's going to remind them of some things. Paul's response to this wrong understanding. And it starts right in verse 1. It says this, Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Well, what do we have right here? Well, do we, do we have a, a, a forgery? Was there, was there a forgery written to them earlier? If you look at the very end that, that uh, Pastor Keith Withrow will be preaching next week, Paul makes this elaborate writing at the very end saying, hey, I wrote this with my own hand. This is my writing. So it could be that a forgery was going around to the churches and they were being confused by that. Um, We've got a little bit in, in uh, 1 Thessalonians 4, if you could just flip a page over there. We've got some, a little bit of detail that will kind of set our thinking a little bit. And this is what the Thessalonians would be thinking because they would have already gotten this letter a few years earlier. If we just look at a few different verses in 1 Thessalonians 4, we'll see some things like um, in verse 13. We don't want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, those who have died that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. So he's saying, hey, there's some hope that we have. And then he says, for since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, 
Even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. And we go down a little bit more to, to verse 16. It says, The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command. It talks about the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. It talks in verse 17 about being caught up with them in the clouds. We go into chapter 5, and it says in verse 2, it talks about the day of the Lord coming like a thief in the night. And then verse 4 says, But you are, not to be, you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. And verse 6 says, Do not be asleep. So the Thessalonian church had already been hearing some truth, some markers. Hey, here's how things are going to be, and here's how things are going to be, and here's how things are going to be. But there's clearly some other preaching or writing that's gone around to try to deceive them. And, and Paul is saying, do not be deceived. And this false teaching or false thinking is not isolated to Thessalonica. This is what happens when false teaching creeps in. So had they forgotten what he had already taught? Here's a couple other kind of marker verses that we need to lock into our mind. Look at 1 Thessalonians 5.23. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. There's real comfort in that. Had they forgotten that? How about another one? How about verse 11 of 1 Thessalonians 5? Therefore, encourage one another and build, up, and build one another up just as you are doing. The return is coming. Encourage each other. Build each other up. This is a good thing. Christ is coming back. It's not scary. It's not push it to the back. This is something we need to be looking to, and we cannot be deceived. So, so how, the question must be asked, can I not be deceived? Because if we think about this church, um, they're, they're commended in chapter 1, verse 3. It says, hey, I'm thankful for you guys. Uh, they're only 25 or so years from the time of Christ being here on the earth, Thessalonians being one of the earlier books Paul had written. Um, so even though they, being a Gentile church, are quite a ways away from Israel, they would certainly be talking with all kinds of people that were eyewitnesses to Jesus Christ himself. Only 25 years. Um, were, they, were they looking to be deceived? Are they foolish people? Are they Christians looking to sin? Well, there's, there's none of those things. So Paul reminds them, hey, here's two signs, two things to think about so you cannot be deceived. Look at verses 3 and 4. It says, let no one deceive you in any way. For that day, this day that we're looking towards, that day will not come unless, one, the rebellion comes first, and two, the man of lawlessness is revealed. And he's the son of destruction. And here's what he does. He opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. So it says that the rebellion must come first. Now we know that there has been rebellion and there continues to be rebellion from the time of Adam in the garden. We can look in the garden when the serpent says, did God really say? We can look at Cain when he says, after killing his brother, am I my brother's keeper? We can look in the days of Noah when, when I mean, we're only in Genesis chapter 6 in, in Noah's time, and God says there's, there's only wickedness in the land. All we're seeing anywhere is sin and sin and sin. So rebellion is not new on the scene now. We, we could push on to the, 
the amount of demonic activity going on in the time when Jesus was walking in the earth, and you see that over and over and over. And unless our heads are in the sand, we look at our world today, and we watch the news, and we say, what is going on? When people are calling good evil and evil good, and to even speak truth, oftentimes in the public square, so frowned upon and seems so recently here in our world, rebellion isn't new to the time of this lawless one. But there's going to be an increase in it. It's going to be ratcheted up to a greater and greater level. So the rebellion's going to come first in a, in a greater and greater way. And this man of lawlessness is going to be revealed. Well, what are some, what are some things connected with that revelation of him? Well, he's going to exalt himself over every god. He's going to get a, take a seat in the temple. And he's going to proclaim to be God himself. Well, exalting over every god, clearly if you're doing some of these things, you're, you're, you're saying, I'm the exalted one right there. How about this seat in the temple? Well, Every time that Paul uses the term temple, he doesn't talk about the literal, physical temple in Jerusalem. Now, now that might be, this Antichrist person might be taking a literal seat in the literal temple. Uh, I I don't think that's the case. I don't think that's the best fit. Uh, Really, when, when Paul uses temple, it's a lot of times that Ephesians 2 idea, body of Christ fitted together, a holy temple unto the Lord. That's in 2021, 20, 22, somewhere in there. That's typically the way Paul uses the word temple. And so my understanding of this would be probably this, this Antichrist is going to be sitting over and trying to rule the purported people of God or even those that truly are the people of God. At least he's trying to make that attempt. Now, what does that exactly look like? Well, there's been guesses on, on who the Antichrist is, and people have guessed the Pope and others, and we'll get into that in just a little bit. But to some degree, he's going to be going over the Christian world and saying, I rule you. And in the greater Christian world, all kinds of people are going to be saying, oh, okay, I guess you're the one that I follow. And then he's establishing himself. He proclaims to be God. So, so who is this guy? Well, we don't know, but some, some, some guesses have gone out throughout history. I think it'd be helpful to look at some of those because we're working our way through here. If, if you would have lived um, about 200 years before the time that Paul wrote this, so if you would have been a Jewish person living in Israel in 169 BC, and someone said, hey, there's an Antichrist figure coming, you would have said, oh yeah, it's Daniel told us all about him 300 and some years ago. It's this Antiochus Epiphanes guy. He's the one that actually had a hog slaughtered on the, the, the temple, on the altar. I mean, he's the one that set up worship of a false god literally in our temple. That has to be the guy. It's not the guy because the return has not happened. Um, others would say, hey, we've got different um, uh, Roman rulers Um, Nero was one that was a popular figure, but died and disappeared off the scene. Vespasian was a really popular one because he he started the the, um, attacking Jerusalem in that 66 to 70 AD time period. He started it, um, got partial control, then he actually went back to Rome, and and, um, Titus uh, finished off Israel, and there's just horrificness of that, and, and Matthew 24 pushes to a lot of that timing. 
Um, I think some other end time as well, but a lot of it pushes right there. You could say, oh, it must be Vespasian, or, or it might be Titus, or you look at some of the persecution under Decius or Diocletian, you think, oh, it must be them. It must be, must be the Roman ruler. The Roman ruler must be the one. He has to be the Antichrist. Until the early 300s and Constantine flips a switch and says, okay, oh, hey, hey, Rome, uh, no longer is it illegal to be a Christian. You kind of have to be a Christian now in Rome. Oh, uh, well, what do we do with that? So then people pushed to, um, uh, certainly Muhammad was looked at one. If you look at, at even after his death, when, when Islam was pushing its way into Europe, uh, made it into Austria, at least to the edge of Austria, people are saying, how do we control this religious horde? This must be the Antichrist. This is too much. Goes off the scene. And the Pope, a lot of the pre-reformers and reformers, Wycliffe, Huss, uh, Calvin, uh, Luther, all said the Pope must be the Antichrist. I even read a scholarly article by David Murray a while back, and he said, hey, there's, there's some possibilities of that, and then he kind of backed off of it a little bit. But he had some, had some reasons why he thought that might be one. Um, the... Uh, um, Catholics then, uh, Roman Catholics then flopped around and said, well, if you say it's going to be our Pope, then uh, we're going to say it's you, Martin Luther. So uh, Luther was the expected uh, Antichrist by some Roman Catholics a few hundred years back. That is not the case of the Roman Catholic Church today. They do not see him as that, but for a while that was possible, at least a possibility that was pushed. All that to say, we have no idea. And it is irresponsible for us to go around and say, oh, I think it's this person or that person. So in a group this size, I'm sure we have a diversity of, of thoughts on end times events. And if we took all of our extended family and friends and coworkers, there's a whole additional amount of I think this, I think this, and I think that. You might have relatives that say, oh, I know it's this guy. Oh, I know it's this woman. Oh, I know it's this guy. You might have all kinds of that in our extended families. But just be reminded, God chose not to tell us. Could he have? Yes, but he did not. It's irresponsible of us to try to speculate, but rather we need to see what types of things will they be doing. Certainly we need to be watching for that. There's wisdom in that. But to declare that on our own, free here, there, and everywhere, we ought not to do. We are not Told. So, with these two expectations, that the rebellion is going to come first and that the man of lawlessness is revealed, does this rule out an imminent return? If you are post-mill, you do not believe in an imminent return. If you are pre-mill, uh, either historical or dispensational, you do believe in an imminent return. And if you are a-mill, I think it's about 50-50 on what people believe, but whatever people's position are, they usually say, oh yeah, most of us believe this, but I think it's about... 50-50. So is the return of Christ, can the return of Christ still be imminent connected to this passage? Um, I would say it still can be. First of all, we need to see that the rebellion will precede the return, but no one knows the level of rebellion. If you lived in, um, name the place, if you lived in Russia a hundred years ago, you'd be saying, oh my goodness, 80 years ago. If you lived in, um, Again, you name the place, at different times you would say, this has to be the rebellion. It has never been worse than this. But the return has not happened yet. So 
So the, the, the um, rebellion has to proceed, but nobody knows at what level and how quickly it could escalate. Two, the return will not take believers by surprise. We have verses that Jesus told us, talking about watching and lamps trimmed and an hour you do not expect. So the return will not take believers by surprise. And three, those not prepared are the ones that are going to be surprised. We might add a surprise, we could add terrified to that. So an imminent return is still possible with this section. So that's the first thing we need to remember. So that's kind of the first pillar in the house. We need to find comfort in thoughts of the return, comfort in knowledge of the return. And that first post is, we must not be deceived. The second post is that we need to remember what we have been taught. Now, specific to the first century, they were taught by Paul and Silas. That's their original teachers on the second missionary journey. It's a pretty good teaching team right there. They came to this Gentile area and shared the good news of Jesus Christ, and people came to Christ, and this fledgling, fledgling church was begun. Later, First Thessalonians tells us that they sent Timothy to come there and to guide and teach and correct some things. These are good, solid teachers that they had. So they need to remember them. Um, and let's look in verse 5 and 6. Paul says, do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And you know what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his time. And I think that's kind of interesting. We don't know what the Thessalonians know. He said, hey, remember when I taught you about this? Well, there's, no written, there's nothing written that Paul writes about that. There's no sermon that was saved. So they knew some stuff of which we can only speculate or take an, take an educated guess. So they had some information that we do not have. We do not have that sermon. But what is restraining? It says, I told you these things, and you know what is restraining him now. So who is restraining this Antichrist? Who is the one holding him back right now? Well, here's another list that people have gone through from history. Uh, some believe that that would be the Roman Empire or good government. We know that Romans 13 says to... They do not wield the sword in vain. Um, and a government, a good government, a right government, is not a terror to good. Some people believe it's a Roman Empire, a good government. Uh, some believe that it's the Holy Spirit is the one restraining. In the next verse, in verse 7, it talks till he is out of the way. And uh, specifically, those that, that believe in, in a short seven-year type tribulation, they all, they all believe that uh, it is the Holy Spirit. Uh, another group would say, we believe this is a gospel witness is what is holding back the Antichrist. And, and for most of us uh, members, certainly, we've been reading salvation testimonies these past few weeks, haven't we? So we've had a new members class, and then the, the potential new members have been, have been writing down their salvation testimonies, how they came to Christ, and then they sent them out to the church. And we read them, and we read them, and we say, I've met this lady, I've talked with her, Look at how God worked in her life. Look at how she came to an understanding of the good news. Look at how she went from, from darkness to light, from, from wantonly, willfully sinning to say, I want to follow Jesus Christ. He died on the cross for me. I, I, want, I want to follow him. I'm a new creature. And I hope that you with me, when you read those, you say, look at the power of God. Look at what God has done in their life. And many people would argue that, that the gospel being shared is really what's holding back. That's what's restraining. And if you, um, 
if you, you know, talk with missionaries and you hear what's going on in China and you hear what's going on in North Africa and you hear what's going on in Central America and you hear the gospel going forth and you say, that very well could be certainly a means God is using. Someone argue that angels are the ones restraining or hold them back. You know, we could specifically look at, at Daniel, uh, other places in scripture. Daniel prays and says, hey, I need help. God, I need help. And, and God says, actually, some time passes and he says, hey, I answered and sent you the angel right there, but there's spiritual warfare going on all around. So angels could be a restrainer. B.B. Uh, Warfield, I thought this was interesting, famous Kentuckian that then went on to be the main, a main professor at Princeton. Um, he thought the Jewish state was the one that was re, re, uh, holding him back. That's what B.B. Warfield thought. And I think over all of this, we could say this. How about the sovereign hand of God? When I, when I read in this passage, I see nothing but God holding back, using, he could be using a variety of means. He could be using any and all of these means, as well as others not mentioned. But how about the sovereign hand of God? I've got a few verses I want us to look at. Isaiah 45, 7 through 9. As we think through the bigness and the power of God, and the comfort that it is to, to follow and listen to the teaching that we have gotten, the teaching we can also get through the word, here's what God says in Isaiah 45, 7 through 9. God says, I form light, and I create darkness. I make well-being, and I create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Shower, O heavens, from above, and the clouds rain down righteousness. Let the earth open, that salvation and righteousness may bear fruit. Let the earth cause them both to sprout. I, the Lord, have created it. Woe to him who strives with him who formed him, a pot among earthen pots, does the clay say to him who forms it, what are you making? Or your work has no handles? Sovereign God. Lamentations 3, 37 and 38. Who has spoken and it came to pass? Unless the Lord has commanded it. Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that good and bad come? How about Proverbs 21 that the men's group looked at a few weeks ago? The hearts of kings like rivers of water in the hand of the Lord. The sovereign hand of God is truly the restrainer using a variety of means. So that would be, so that was five and six. Let's look at seven here. It says, um, for the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. And then I want you to ju jump down to verse nine, because then he's going to kind of say, okay, I've been teaching you some about this man of lawlessness, this antichrist. Let me kind of review again about this guy. And he, he does that in, in nine through 12. It says, the coming of the lawless one is won by the activity of Satan. So in no way can we connect this to, to um, uh, anything other than Satan wanting to foist evil and gain uh, victory over God. So the coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan. It's with all power and false signs and wonders. And there's groups of people out there that will say, hey, if we can see signs and wonders and things, that's guaranteed that it's from God. But that is not the case. We need to be aware that there's going to be false signs and false wonders with this individual. And then in 3, in verse 10, it'll be um, with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion 
so that they may believe what is false in order that all might be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. So why are they perishing? Because they refuse truth. They are having the ultimate worshiping the creature rather than the creator. And that's something that every single person in this room needs to put thought into when I go through my daily life. How am I replicating Genesis? Am I worshiping the created ones, myself or others? Or am I worshiping the creator himself? I think this pushes us to remember that there really is right and wrong. That today on Father's Day, fathers, mothers, grandparents, you know, uncles and aunts, everybody, we need to teach our kids in this church, in our families, outside of this church, there really is right and wrong. That it really is okay and even good to say, this is right, that is wrong. And we need to do it in a kind way. We've all met the, the person who is, a, is mean about speaking the truth, and they are not loving their neighbors or themselves, and they're being mean about it, and that represents Christ so poorly. So that can be a ditch to fall into, that I want to be so nice and so kind that I don't speak truth. But the other ditch that we can fall into as well is, well, I don't want to say this because I don't want to offend anyone. And especially if you interact, um, your typical kid thing now, whether it's a day camp, a daycare, much of the time in schools, sometimes sports teams, whatever, is nobody can speak against anything or else they're mean or narrow or bigoted or whatever. Well, we do not want to be mean. We don't necessarily, we'd have to define narrow. We definitely don't want to be bigoted. But there is truth and there is lies. And it's saying right here, hey, those that do not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. So he's saying unrighteousness is connected to untruth. There's truth or there's unrighteousness. Which, which are you going to have is the way Paul is setting it up right here. And he says, those that have pleasure in unrighteousness and untruth will be condemned. Pretty harsh, pretty harsh words right there. So who are saved? Well, it's the lovers of truth. And really that 11 and 12, it's really God gives them over to the lie that they want. They're saying, this is what I want. I don't want to believe the truth. I want to have pleasure in unrighteousness. Really finishing the process that's begun in in Romans 1, and I'm going I'm to read just a little bit from Romans 1. Um, that's really what we're seeing here in 2 Thessalonians 2. This rebellion and rejecting truth and saying, get that out of here. I don't want to have any part of that. And rebellion and rebellion and rebellion. Right at the end, he's, that's what Romans chapter 1 is saying is coming in an increasing way. It says in verse 1 of Romans or in verse 18, it says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And then down in 21, it says, They knew God, but they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. And then we have these discouraging words of 24. It says, Therefore God gave them up. And 26, for this reason, God gave them up. And verse, 27, and verse 28, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up. They're receiving the results 
of what they desired. And God is truly giving them over to that. And then we go, we go back to verse 7. It says in verse 7, For the, the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he, the Antichrist, is out of the way. So how is this mystery of lawlessness already at work? Well, what it's really telling us is the man of lawlessness is coming. And when this Antichrist man of lawlessness is coming, rebellion's going to come in a way just going up. But even right now, rebellion is increasing and increasing and increasing. And much like um, 1 John chapter 2, and it says um, Antichrist and Antichrist and Antichrist is here, it's this rebellion idea in a, in a seed form is here even now. And we don't need to be reminded of, of that because we see it working already. But it says he is already at work. God is using his sovereign hand to restrain, using various means, but will not forever. And then the lawless one will be here, he'll be revealed, and it will be horror. Except, look at verse 8. So right in the middle of all this, it's awful, 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 and it's going to get worse and worse. And then it skips part of verse 8, and then it goes down. Awful, awful, awful. Look at what verse 8 reminds us. It says, and then the lawless one will be revealed. Okay? Whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. So of all this uh, awful stuff right in the middle, he says, hey, 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 hey. Annihilated. Done. Comfort. Can I handle the Antichrist? Absolutely not. Can God Almighty, through the Son Jesus Christ, absolutely annihilate with the breath of his mouth? Luther says what? One little word will fell him. Really, really, really good thinking. So, remember what you have been taught. Remember not to be deceived. Remember what you have been taught, that God rules, and he's trustworthy, and brings comfort to his children. And then these next two will be shorter. Remember, starting in verse 13, the third pillar, remember the good news. Remember the gospel of Jesus Christ. What does it say in verse 13 and 14? It says, but we had always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel, so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. I really appreciated P.K.'s words last week when he was preaching from chapter 1, when he talked about in the section being thankful for his brothers and sisters in Christ. And remind yourself of that as you pray through the directory, as you think of each other during the week, as you meet up with each other, as you seek to get to know people in this room that you don't know well, get to know them better and be thankful for what God has done in saving brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. Why should we be thankful? Well, it goes right into election. It says we need to be thankful for election, God choosing you. We need to be thankful for sanctification of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit saying you're set apart for me. We need to be thankful for faith. John 15 verse 16 says, you did not choose me, but I chose you. Ephesians 1 1 Corinthians 1, 
several places in Romans, 1 Corinthians 4, all remind us your salvation is not something for you to brag about. My salvation is not something for me to brag about that I did, but it's one to say, all glory be to Jesus who saw fit to reach down to me. Can't take credit for our conversion. Can't be saying, look how well I'm bearing fruit. We need to say, look at God. God has expectations that I cannot meet. God is holy and pure and right. And as, a, as he says in Isaiah early on, and he says, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. God is holy and righteous, and we're not. We know that we are sinners. You know, as, as John shared, we are sinners. We fall short every day. I mean, sins that we knowingly commit and sins we unknowingly commit— and sure, and I say this all the time, but it's so true, we can all compare ourselves to somebody and say, well, I'm not like that guy, or I'm not like her, but we are sinners. And we are every bit as guilty as the quote-unquote vilest sinner. We are far from God. Our sin puts us there, both in Adam and our personal choice to sin. But Jesus Christ died on that cross we saw, we watched a little video of, I think it was singing Amazing Grace around the world and those people singing those words from Amazing Grace. And I was just reminded as I heard that last night, this is what Jesus did. This is what Jesus did on the cross for me, atoned. Why? Because he said his love. Do not deserve. But then the expectation too with the gospel is what is the response? So what do, we, what do we do this here? Do we just say, wow, that's amazing what Jesus did and God is really righteous and I'm really bad, but what is the human response? So teenager here today or nine-year-old here today or 99-year-old here today, if you do not know Christ, what is your response to this? Do we acknowledge our sin, cry out to a holy Savior and say, I trust in you, my faith in you, I renounce the sin and I follow you, you are mine and I want to follow you. What is our response? Because there's some, some dire warnings in here. Because Jesus is going to return. And we should be reading in 2 Thessalonians and be reminded, this is serious. Look at um, 2 Thessalonians 1, starting with verse 7. Um, it says, so Christ is coming, and, and he's going to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well to us. When, here's what we're looking for. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven. So this is the return. He's coming with his mighty angels. So he's, for believers, you're going to get relief. You're going to get a resurrected body. New, new heaven and new earth. No sin. No cancer. No diseases. None of that. But what if you do not know Christ? It says he's coming in verse 8 in flaming fire inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and those who do not obey the good news, the gospel of the Lord Jesus. Look at, look at what it says here. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in the saints and be marveled at among those who have believed. He's talking about punishment and destruction and horror. But for his children, he's saying they're going to be Bring glory to God. You're going to be marveled about, about those who believe because our testimony to you was believed. So for, for the believer in all this, 
Christ is returning, but for the believer, we're saying, I remember the good news. I find comfort in that. On my toughest days, on my most difficult days, when I'm, if I'm concerned about the return, if I'm concerned about the direction our world is going in, I can find comfort in remembering the good news of Jesus Christ. Let Satan attack. Do your worst. He who called us is able to bring us home. Glory to him. So that would be the third pillar, remembering the good news. And then our fourth pillar, we need to remember the word. And really, this is a type of conclusion here, his concluding words in this chapter. But remember the word. And we're going to argue that that is both the inscripturated word, and that's also the word of Jesus. So it says in verse 15, So then, brothers... Stand firm and hold to the traditions that you have been taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good help through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. Now I will say this. This has been somewhat heavy stuff in this chapter. There's some challenging things. There's some things to wrestle with. Hey, is this here? Is this, is this there? How is it going to be? Things are going to get worse. Rebellion against God will increase. And it's Father's Day. And you were maybe coming here thinking, oh, I'm going to get an uplifting little jolt to, to be a little bit better of a father or, or something along those lines. So the question I have for you is, should we panic? Should we stop getting married and having children? Should we stop seeing beauty in our world? Should we cease cultivating friendships? Should we stop loving and spending time with our siblings in Christ? And what does it say here? It says, stand firm. So it's the opposite of verse 2 where it says, hey, don't be quickly shaken. It says, stand firm. It says to hold to the tradition, or some of your translations might say teaching. It's really the truth handed along. It's the, it's the things you learn from a godly person. Some of you are familiar with Marvin Alasky, uh, the editor of World Magazine. He wrote a book that came out, I don't know, a month ago called Lament for a Father. And um, Marvin Alasky grew up in a Jewish home with, in my words, pretty lousy dad. Um, his dad didn't really interact with him much. Um, Marvin loved sports. He begged and begged and begged his dad for years to play catch with him. His dad agrees to one time. Mar you know, Marvin can't even believe it. Dad's going to play catch with me. They live in an apartment building. They go out on the street, pavement out there. His dad throws the first ball, chucks it nowhere near him, bounces it off the ground. It was an accident, but he was not an athlete, clearly. And it rolls, you know, 400 yards down the street. Alaska yells back at his dad, why didn't you throw it to me? Goes and gets the ball and comes back, and his dad went inside. It's done only time his dad ever played with him his entire life. And I can look at that because I have a terrific dad. I can look at that and I can think, how can that be? That is so terrible. How could you be that lousy of a dad? But the point of Alasky's book is, I was too hard on my dad. I need to have the mercy and grace as a converted man. Alasky came to Christ just after college, I think, maybe in grad school. He came to Christ, came to saving faith in Christ. And he says, now, as a believer, how can I show my, dad's, my dad grace? His dad's been dead for 20 years. How can I show my dad grace? 
Well, I can see some of the rough things he went through right after World War II and going back to Germany because he's fluent in German. He's Jewish. And seeing people that have been starved to death and killed and all the abuse of people. Even after World War II, there was still some of that going on as, as many waited to go down to Israel. He says there's probably several other things in his life. I need to show my dad biblical love. So really we can learn two things from that book. One, if you're a person in here and you did not have or do not have a very good earthly father, can we show them love and grace and mercy as a believer that we might not feel like, but can we? And two, as dads in here, some application for us is, how much am I pouring into my children? And many of us pour in at things we enjoy. And it might be sports, or it might be movies, or it might be music, or it might be baling hay. But there's things that we're pouring into our kids, right? But am I pouring the word into them? It says this, you know, this word is, um, hold on to the traditions. That's, that's truth passed on. Are we passing on this apostolic teaching, much of which became the inscripturated word? And Jesus, the word himself from John 1. So as a final thought with these pillars, remember the word, remember the good news, remember to not be deceived, and remember what you've been taught. That eschatology is not stress, it is comfort. Read these verses even this afternoon. Read these chapters this afternoon and be comforted. And let me close with one, with two last verses from 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, 12 and 13. I'll read 11. I'll start with 11. Now, may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus Christ direct our way to you, and may the Lord himself make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father when... At the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all the saints. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are weak. We are often fearful. We are often overly concerned with societal or economic or political problems. Lord, it's not to say we're to stick our head in the sand. We're to pray for our leaders. We are, you know, it is a blessing to be able to vote. It's a tremendous blessing to live in a country such as we do. But Lord, we want to be looking for your return, not looking to make the United States the coolest country ever. And Lord, we want to love our neighbors as ourselves and reach out to the poor and the hurting and the orphan and the widow in their distress and the foreigner in our midst. And, and Lord, we want that. But Lord, let us not lose sight that you are going to come back. That we are not to be surprised or shocked. We're to have our, our lamps trimmed. and we're to, be, we're to be waiting and watching as those brides are that Jesus pushed. Lord, may we find comfort in the thought of your return. May we not be so vested in this world that this is all we think about. Lord, may we glorify you at your coming with all the saints. In Jesus' name, amen.